the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the stubbornness of Pharaoh. He had no intention of obeying God. And so when something actually happened, and he's like, whoa, that's supernatural, he looked for an excuse of why he doesn't need to listen. Here's the thing. Do you and I do that? It's funny how we work sometimes. We're like, God, if you just write it in the sky, I would know it's you. (laughs) And the Lord's like, I don't need to write it in the sky. I wrote it in a book. And descends in perfect love. I already gave it to you. This is a miraculous thing that you can study and you can see. No contradictions, no problems, fulfilled prophecy. You can see it. But even if God were to write it in the sky, we still wouldn't necessarily believe. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Moses had been slow initially in doing what God had asked him to do, but God was merciful and reaffirmed the promises he'd made to Moses and all of the children of Israel. Now, Moses and Aaron will go before Pharaoh as God continues to try and reach Pharaoh's heart before it's too late. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. We've been studying the book of Exodus up to this point, and the whole theme of the book of Exodus, we've come from Genesis, and it's a continuation, but we're moving from the past to the present. Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he was relaying to the people of Israel there their beginnings, their origins, where they came from, what God's plan was. And we started big with, you know, Adam and Eve and the creation of the world, and it got narrowed down further and further and further until we got all the way to the journey into Egypt from Jacob and his family, his 12 sons and their wives and their kids. And and as they go in there into Egypt, they find refuge there and God provides for them through Joseph. But then as time goes by and fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to Abraham, the people became enslaved in bondage to Egypt and God raised them up a deliverer. And when we get here to chapter seven, we now begin the second literary division of the book of Exodus. He's moving forward now and he's prior to this, the first six chapters, they were very concerned with Moses and who he was. It was more with the person of the deliverer and his struggles with God's call. But chapter 7 now begins to focus less on Moses and more on the work of the Redeemer, our God, and his power to save. From this point forward, we're not going to see a timid or discouraged Moses, but an emboldened and obedient Moses as he watches God faithfully and powerfully deal with Egypt. And as we look at God deal powerfully and faithfully with Egypt, this means we're going to spend a lot more time learning about Pharaoh and his person and what he's like. A man who loses everything in the end because he refuses to lose in the beginning. It's interesting because everything's backwards in Christianity. Losing is winning, right? We read that in our scripture reading. If you seek to save your life, what happens? You lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, he says, shall find it. Then it's backwards because that's not how we're trained. It's not how we learn to do life. When the promotion comes up, you put your best foot forward, right? Put your best foot forward because you want to win the promotion. You know, you want to make sure you look your best and you do your best and everything. But for the Christian, it's completely opposite. In our relationship with God and how we prosper in his economy, we experience his blessing in our lives is we give up, right? We surrender. 
And in surrendering, we find victory because then he fills us and he lives through us by the power of his spirit. So as we look at Pharaoh and, and his stubborn heart, would it remind us of the, the futility of fighting against God? And it's, it's better to lose now so that God can raise you up the way he wants to. So chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made you a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth mine armies, and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt, and bring out the children of Israel from among them. We've come from chapter 6, where at the end of chapter 5, Moses basically charged the Lord saying, Lord, why'd you even send me here? You haven't done anything you said you'd do. The Lord says, I will now show you what I will do. Moses, this isn't about you being my helper. This is about me delivering my people. And so that took place. And Moses, but he ends chapter six by saying, I'm of uncircumcised lips. Why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And so in chapter seven, God says to Moses, see or understand this is what that word see means. You need to understand this. I have made you a God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be your prophet. Now that's a weird phrasing. What does that mean? Well, the idea here is that God is telling Moses, I have elevated you to a level that Pharaoh understands. Remember, according to the Egyptians, Pharaoh was himself a god. By name, literally the son of God, because he was considered the son of Ra, the sun god or the chief deity of the Egyptians. He was seen as deity himself. And so God is explaining to Moses, I am elevating you to a level that Pharaoh understands. See, Pharaoh thinks he's a God, Moses, and he stated, who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him? But see, God turns it around on Pharaoh. He says, you're not unique, Pharaoh. I can elevate a man to powerful status too. You are not my equal. You are Moses' equal. And if you decide to take me on, this is going to end very badly for you. And that's an important thing to realize. Very often men think, man thinks he's equal to God or even more just than God or better than God. We see things like hell and we think, well, we're more compassionate and just than God is. I would never do that. How could a God of love do that? Or we see God's commands, but we think we're more intelligent and we can get the job better done better than God. And so we disobey him. But God has no equal. And we sang that song this morning, holy. That word, it's, it's so special to me because we sing it and we usually think of God's perfection. And yes, it does speak of his perfection. Or we think of it speaking of God's sinlessness. And surely it speaks of that too. Or maybe God's beauty, you know, as the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But when we look at that word holy, the very nature of the word means to be separate or distinct or unique. He's one of a kind, right? You know, we're not like him. We are different. We are his creation. He made us. And so we are not his equal. God has no equal. Not Pharaoh, not me. But see, Pharaoh refuses to accept this. God gives him a way out by giving him an equal who makes a request. See, Pharaoh sees himself as God's equal. And so God says to him, hey, let my people go into the wilderness for three days to worship me. And he's thinking, well, you're my equal. Why should I listen to you? I actually think I'm greater than you. The only one that's my greater is Ra himself. Why should I listen to you? I don't even know what deity you are. But see, God elevates Moses in a way that now it's a request coming from an equal. And see, instead of realizing that and taking the way out, Pharaoh says, no, 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 Moses. I'm going to take on your God. And that is going to end up being brutalizing for Pharaoh. 
God tells Moses, you shall speak all that I command you. Moses, how is he going to listen to me? I've elevated you, Moses. He will. Not, not right away, but eventually he will. So you shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall speak unto Pharaoh that he send the children of Israel out of his land. So here we find that God says, you speak everything I tell you, I command you. No deviations this time. Remember the last time what happened? Hey, Pharaoh, the God of, of the Hebrews says to let my people go into the wilderness for three days. And Pharaoh goes, why should I listen to your God? I don't know who he is. Why should I listen to you? I don't care who you are. And Moses and Aaron panic and they go, if you don't let us go, God's going to kill us all. And God's like, I didn't tell you that. Say what I commanded you, okay? No attempts to help me out. And as you probably have learned in your own life, that's the best way to go, isn't it? He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need my ideas. God, we need to plan this out. We need to have a budget meeting, Lord. We need to figure this out together. The Lord doesn't need my input. Verse 3. He says, this is what you're to do, Moses and Aaron, and then this is what I will do. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. God says, listen, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and I'm going to do great signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. You speak my word, you let me take care of the rest. Now, I don't want to get into this too much because we already covered it in an earlier session. But when God says here that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, this is one of the two words for harden. When it refers to Pharaoh hardening his own heart, the word that is used almost 95% of the time, almost every time, is He made his heart stubborn. He made his heart proud. He made his heart arrogant. He made his heart unyielding, unmoving. The word that is used 100% of the time when God hardens Pharaoh's heart is this word, which means to confirm or strengthen something that already exists. Pharaoh's hardness already exists. His impenitent heart already exists. existed. His pride already existed. And God says, I will confirm that pride. When he refuses to listen, I'm going to come alongside and make him even stronger in it because that's what he wants to do. And in doing so, I'm going to do great signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Why? Well, he says, Pharaoh's not going to hearken unto you that I may do three things. Lay my hand upon Egypt, bring my people out of Egypt, and the Egyptians, verse 5, so that they know that I am the Lord. So God says, I have three reasons for why I'm doing it this way. To lay my hand upon Egypt. I need to deal with Egypt as a nation. They have committed great atrocities. I need to deal with them. I need to bring my people out like I've promised you. I need to keep my promise. And number three, I need to reveal myself to the Egyptians so they know that I am the Lord. Because here's the truth. Just like Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? I don't know who that is. None of Egypt knew either. They didn't know who he was. So God says, despite all these miracles, Pharaoh still won't listen. So Moses, keep that in mind through the process. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get discouraged. But I am going to do my work. I'm going to lay my hand upon Egypt. The word there means, or phrase means, to smite. I am going to deal with Egypt for their horrible treatment of my people. Now, you might think to yourself, wow, that's, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. People will, oftentimes, I'll be in conversation with them, and they'll say, I don't understand why God has to judge man. Like, why does God have to deal with man this way? At the same time those words will come out of their mouth, they'll usually utter in the, in the same conversation at some point later on, or earlier they have already uttered, why does God allow evil? <laughs> and you can't have it both ways. You can't say, why doesn't God do something about evil, and then say, well, why does God have to punish me? The problem is, is because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all do wickedness. We all do evil. And so God has to deal with all of us. 
God has to punish sin. And when a judge lets someone off who is obviously guilty, what happens? There's an outcry. There's an outcry of injustice. How could this happen? How could the jury have voted that way? Or how could the judge have made that decision? This is a horrible choice. Someone just got away with wrong. Justice needs to be done. Well, God doesn't let people get away with wrong. He has an option, though. And he gives us an opportunity to repent that we might be forgiven. And for Egypt, he would give them 10 plagues to repent. And here's the beautiful part. Some of them did. Some of them came to know the God of Israel. They came to know Jehovah God. And they actually, some of them left with Israel when they left Egypt. Now, some of them weren't the best influence, but some of them were okay. Many remained, though, unrepentant. And as a result, they were smitten by God. But God did not smite those who repented. It's fascinating when you look at the plagues because there's certain ones that, again, my favorite moment, I've said this before, so you're probably tired of it, but my favorite moment is when Moses is with Pharaoh and he says to him, listen, buddy, hail with fire and brimstone is coming on your land to destroy the crops and everything like that. And then it says, the language says that Moses walks out of Pharaoh and the plague begins. And it makes mention that he walks out clearly under the sun. He's walking, his hail and everything is falling all around him. And he has no fear because he knows that it's not going to touch him because he's, he's, he's on the side of the Lord. And what a fascinating thing that God makes that separation between those who were repentant, those who were his, and those who were unrepentant and did not respond to his wonders. He says, secondly, to bring my people out of Egypt. And we covered that last week, that that was the promise God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then in chapter 6, he made it to his people Israel. And lastly, that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. God loved Egypt and he wanted to reveal himself to them. But in their situation, there was only one way to do so, and that was through judgment. Now verse 6 We finally see Moses obey. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. So did they. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) After six chapters of excuses and complaining, finally they choose to obey the Lord, and now God can do his thing. And it makes this little note, verse 7, And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old, when they spake unto Pharaoh. Now, this is how we know that Aaron is three years older than Moses, but I don't necessarily think that's why that's told here. I think it's told to us here because that's passed beyond the halfway point of their lives. Moses will die at the age of 120. So he's lived two thirds of his life already. And that's how long it took him to finally get it right. And maybe you're here tonight and maybe you you look back at your life and you think, I've wasted a lot of time. I've made a lot of poor decisions. I've not used my life in a way that, that God really wanted me to. Listen, I don't know how much time you have left. But with the time you have left, God's not finished. And he's not fed up with you. He hasn't put you on the shelf. Your story is not complete. If you give your life to him now and say, okay, Lord, whatever time is left, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, five years, five months, I just give it to you completely. And you know the beautiful part? How are we most remembered for? Our beginning, our middle, or our end? I don't know about you. I love to read. I read a lot lot of stories. I love to read books. I can remember the beginning and remember the middle, but the thing that always sticks with the most about whether I really like the book or not is what? How it ended. 
If it made me feel emotional in a good way, I was happy, oh yeah, everybody lived, or it made me sad because there was a sacrifice involved and good won over evil, but the person had to lose something as a result, but that's still good. Of course, the depressing stories like Romeo and Juliet are dumb. That's, that's just horrible, awful. I'm like, who, who thinks this stuff up? That's a sick man. The Lord's like, really? You're trouncing Shakespeare? My point is, is that God's not done with you. If you still draw breath, he's not done with you yet. So just say, Lord, whatever time is left, I give it to you. Watch what he does. Well, verse eight, and the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron saying, they're on their way, they're going. And God says to him, oh, by the way, when Pharaoh shall speak unto you saying, show a miracle for you. Then you say unto Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. So God prepares Moses and Aaron for their encounter, and he says, when this happens, this is what you do. And this is so cool because it shows that God knows the future, right? He's outside of time. And this means he knows exactly what you're facing too, right? He knows exactly what's going to happen to you this week. He knows exactly the situations you're going to find yourself in, and he's already got solutions for them. He's already got answers, now, I wish that I knew this before I studied, you know, Exodus 7. I got to this like on Thursday or Friday and I started reading it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Everything that happened Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday that wasn't so good, he knew about that and he already had answers for it. So I don't need to panic. But we get like that, don't we? God, what's happening? You know, like all of a sudden heaven stopped working for a few days, right? God knows the future and he has answers. And so he tells Moses, listen, when Pharaoh, you come back there, he's going to say, prove it. Prove that your God has spoken to you. And he says, show me a miracle. Then that's when you take the rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. When Pharaoh says, show me a miracle, when he demands a miracle, when Pharaoh refuses to listen, unless you show him a miracle, then you show it to him. Literally, it means give me a sign that proves I should listen to you. And so he prepares them for that, that they'll do the miracle that he showed Moses at the burning bush. Now, why would God accommodate Pharaoh like this? I'm pretty sure that Pharaoh thinks Moses and Aaron are bluffing about hearing from God. I don't think he expects any miracles from Moses and Aaron. But even if he did, his response is very interesting. So let's see what happens in verse 10. Now Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord commanded. You're going to see this over and over again. Instead of just them saying what they did, it's going to make it very clear they were obedient to the Lord. They are on board now. They did so as the Lord had commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, if I'm Pharaoh, I would go, whoa, okay, well, that, I don't see that every day. But maybe he did. But whether or not he saw it, that should have given him an indication he was dealing with something supernatural here. This was not a bluff. This was not just Moses and Aaron coming in because the people were lazy. He was really dealing with a supernatural entity here. And so Pharaoh, his response, though, is is interesting to me. Instead of seeing that and going, okay, let's talk. He says, it, it says, then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. Now, who are these guys? The word they're sorcerers and magicians, it means soothsayer priests. These are guys who practice witchcraft in their worship. They would, you know, search the animal entrails and, you know, search the skies for astrology and things like that to determine the future. And they're very steeped in the occult practices. So the ultimate question that we ask here is when Pharaoh summons them out to repeat the miracle and they do it, is it legit? 
were these legitimate supernatural effects through satanic power? Well, what does the Bible say? Is that even possible? Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, the reference here is to the Antichrist. Verses 9 and 10 is where we're going to look at. So speaking of the end times, speaking of the Antichrist, and he's going to come, and it mentions here in verse 9, even him, the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of who? Of Satan, right? With all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So the Bible says this is possible, that Satan does have power, that he can do supernatural things, okay? Now, obviously, when we look at Satan and whatever power he has as an angel, a fallen one, is that equal to God's power or equivalent to God's power? No. God is omnipotent. Satan is not omnipotent. He is limited in power. There's a sense where we have power, where we have ability from God to do certain things that other parts of creation can't. Satan has power to do things that we can't do as an angelic being, as a spirit being, okay? But he is not the equivalent of God. His power is limited. For example, he can't create something from nothing like God can. He has to fashion and form things that already exist into something that looks miraculous. Now, Egyptian sorcerers, according to history, and this is not from the Bible, this is you just read history about them. You can go Google it and find all sorts of interesting information. They were steeped in the occult. And these guys, they commonly carried around snakes, which appeared as rods. Um, they claimed that through their wisdom and power and the power of their gods, they had the ability to charm a serpent into a paralyzed state and could bring them back to life at will. Turn over to Second Timothy chapter 3 with me. It describes these soothsayer priests, these magicians that Moses is facing and Aaron are facing, and it actually gives them names here. And talking about in the end times how there'll be false teachers, and it explains what they're like, and then it compares them to these magicians, these soothsayers. In verse 7 of 2 Timothy 3, it says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These were not unintelligent guys. These were guys who were considered the academic people of their time period. And says, so it says, now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these false teachers also resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, even as theirs, Janus and Jamrazes, was also. We'll look at that in just a moment, what that means. But Second Timothy describes these guys as intelligent, learned men, but men who were oh so far from the true power of God. Now, my question is, why would Pharaoh even summon them? Shouldn't the miracle, whatever the source, have gotten his attention? This is the stubbornness of Pharaoh. He had no intention of obeying God. And so when something actually happened, and he's like, whoa, that's supernatural, he looked for an excuse of why he doesn't need to listen. Now, here's the thing. Do you and I do that? It's funny how we work sometimes. We're like, God, if you just write it in the sky, I would know it's you. And the Lord's like, I don't need to write it in the sky. I wrote it in a book. I already gave it to you. This is a miraculous thing that you can study and you can see. No contradictions, no problems, fulfilled prophecy. You can see it. But even if God were to write it in the sky, we still wouldn't necessarily believe. Remember Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man died and he was in torment. He said to Abraham, can you send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers so they don't come to this place? What did Abraham say? Even if one came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe to this day, <laughs> Jesus came back from the dead. People don't believe. Oh, that's ridiculous. Ah, that probably didn't really happen. Oh, it's just make-believe. It's a fairy tale. It's whatever. But what's interesting is you have, we have no recorded incident of anyone challenging it. None. 
In fact, the only recorded incident of anyone challenging it is in the scriptures itself, where it tells a story about how the Jews, Jewish leaders made up a story saying the disciples stole the body. But no one else said that. Like the Romans didn't say that. There's no Roman historian or writer or anything saying that that's what happened because there's no evidence. There's more proof about the resurrection than many other things that we can find in history because of the eyewitness accounts of people who said, it happened, I was there. You know, it'd been very easy for one of the 12 to say, you know, I mean, Judas, of course, is dead. So one of the 11 that were left to say, no, James and Peter and John are all making it up. They always like to be special, the three. Jesus always took them aside. But really, he was just doing that to keep an eye on them and keep them out of trouble. But we know he didn't rise from the dead. It could have been very easy for any one of them to say that. And when you consider the fact that they all lost their lives, I don't know about you, but I'm not dying for a lie. I'm not going down because of something I know ain't true. It doesn't make any sense. So we often do the very same thing. You know, God, just I wish you'd speak to me. And then you would go to church and the teacher is is teaching a study and you're like, oh, okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do that. It's like, you know, what more can God do? Notice here that they cast down their rods and they became serpents too, but Aaron's rods swallowed up their rods. It's interesting. The word that's used for Aaron's rod that becomes a serpent, it's the word tenon. And it was actually used to describe a dragon or a crocodile or a venomous snake. And so some people have wondered, you know, if, you know, his snake was just bigger and badder and meaner and nastier and just swallowed these guys up. I don't know exactly what it was, but God was demonstrating clearly that Moses's miracle was no mere snake in a paralyzed state. It was no mere smoke and mirrors that Satan uses, his supernatural work that's limited, but it was the creative work of God to take a real piece of wood and turn it into a real snake and therefore stronger than their natural creatures. And shouldn't that get Pharaoh's attention? Nope. Verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. They say, well, that's not Pharaoh's fault. If God hardened his heart, how is that Pharaoh's fault? Bad translation there. Literally, the translation is, and Pharaoh's heart grew stiffer. Most translators describe this not to God's doing, but to Pharaoh's doing. Verse 14 explains that this is the case. For the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And that there means Pharaoh has stiffened his heart. So that gives us the explanation in the next verse, who's doing the hardening. He says, in fact, the very nature of this, it's literally an adjective. It's not a verb in verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's stubborn heart. That's how it's actually worded in the Hebrew. He just comes to Moses and he goes, Pharaoh's stubborn heart. That's how it's worded. And then it's like dot, dot, dot. He refuses to let the people go. Very clearly here. God is not hardening his heart against Pharaoh's will. This is Pharaoh stiffening his own heart. And because of this, God begins to deal with Egypt in judgment. And we begin our study of the plagues. God does not force someone not to choose him. His invitation to join his family is for everyone. But when we harden our hearts against God, God will eventually reaffirm our decision and will let us be against him, if that's what we really want. But that's not what God wants. God is for us. He loves us. Don't let your heart be stubborn against Him. He wants to draw us near to Him. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com 
or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.